Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is a bona fide pleasure to have you here with me. <laughs> and and I think it might be a little bit more of a pleasure than usual to hear my voice because my voice is going right into one of these fancy new microphones that I got. And I got this microphone, this fancy new microphone, in part from donations by listeners like you. So thank you so much for those who donated to the Kogo Pod. Now it's hardly too late to donate. I'm actually hoping to get another microphone for guests that I hope to have on the podcast in the forthcoming weeks and months. And hey, this podcast here takes time and time, as they say, is money. So if you got a few extra shekels around and you want to support independent creators, if this podcast does something for you, please feel free to hop over to buymeacoffee.com slash Kogopod. The link is in the show notes. <laughs> that said, y'all probably didn't tune in to hear me try to shill for my own project here. You tuned in to hear me talk about Russian politics. And that is decidedly what I will do. I'm calling this talk Calamity in the Caucasus. The fight for Chechnya in post-Soviet chaos. And if I can find the time, this is going to be the first of a four-part talk. Today, I will try to unpack the so-called Chechen wars. And in weeks and months to come, I hope to do a second part on the Russian invasion of South Ossetia. And then I want to do a third part on the Russian invasion of the Crimean Peninsula. And then, of course, while I desperately wish I didn't have to give this talk, there probably has to be a fourth talk on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But as the wise folks say, one thing at a time, and that one thing today is the fight for Chechnya. And if I were one of those wise folk, I would have thought more carefully about exactly how I should start this talk about Chechnya. Uh, maybe, maybe the best place to start is here. While the West celebrated the breakup of the Soviet Union, and I was part of that celebration, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was a mess. And it is a mess that Vladimir Putin claims that he is going to, perhaps single-handedly, clean up, much to the chagrin of those of us who care for human rights and dignity. But Putin hardly started the fire. Now, the problems in Chechnya go back more than a century. And for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to go back to 1917, that fateful year in European history, in the throes of World War I, amidst the turmoil of the Russian Revolution. The Chechen people established a short-lived independent state, and they called this state the United Mountain Dwellers of the North Caucasus. Kind of a cool name for a state, we'll just call it Chechnya. And this new independent Chechnya was opposed by both sides of the Russian Civil War, the so-called red and white factions. 
But despite the opposition of the Reds and the White, the people of the Caucasus had hope. They had hope that following the collapse of the Romanov dynasty and in the throes of the tumult of World War I, they could at long last enjoy an independent state. But these hopes were dashed by 1922 when Bolshevik troops marched in and ended this Chechen state. This is, incidentally, not unlike the East Turkestan Republic in Xinjiang province in China, which also sought independence amidst the tumult of World War I. So this Chechen uprising is put down by Lenin, and of course, a year and a half later, Stalin takes the reins. And if you're taking this class, you know that Stalin ruled with an iron fist. And while there was some disruption during the first decade or so of Stalin's reign in Russia, the sheer totalitarian nature of Stalin's efforts made any hopes for Chechen independence moot. So much so that in the heat of World War II, in so-called Operation Lentil, Stalin resettled more than half the population of Chechnya. He resettled about 400,000 Chechens and also another 100,000 Ingusetians, another Caucasian group. He forcibly pushed them to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. And after Stalin died, hundreds of thousands uh, returned to their, their native and ancestral lands. You may or may not heard of Operation Lentil, but it was a really dramatic, sad, dark chapter during World War II that gets overshadowed by other sad, dark, dramatic, and awful events during World War II. But the Chechen people have hardly forgotten this. Indeed, Europeans who know their history haven't forgotten it. I might note that in 2004, the European Parliament declared Operation Lentil an act of genocide. So that's how serious of a violation of human rights this was. It is, according to the European Parliament, pure and raw genocide. And it fundamentally disrupted the lives and the minds of the Chechen people, and it effectively, to the best of my knowledge, undermined any real efforts towards Chechen independence. Fast forward from the peak of the Stalin years to the end of the Soviet Union. In 1991, two years after the Berlin Wall fell, as the Soviet Union was dissolving, a Chechen National Congress was formed. This Congress declared independence, it wrote a secular constitution, and it demanded independence from Russia. Not surprisingly, Yeltsin didn't recognize independence, nor did he initially use force, despite the fact that Chechens were willing to fight what they called a war of liberation against the Russian occupiers. Now, Yeltsin, for his part, saw Chechnya, perhaps rightly, I'm not here to make these judgments, as part of Russia, as an integral part of Russia. 
how big of a part. Chechnya is about 17,000 square kilometers. So a little bit smaller than Wales, a little bit bigger than Connecticut. All right. You got a one and a half million people who live in Chechnya. And I'm desperately sorry to say that more than 100,000 of those 1.4, 1.5 million residents of Chechnya died in their war of independence against Russia. And my effort here today is to walk you through that war. Now, I should pause here for kind of a nomenclature problem. A lot of the literature that I've read on the wars in Chechnya refer to the First and Second Chechen War. The First Chechen War being from 1994 to 96, and then the Second Chechen War being from 1999 until something like 2009. I'm not sure that I'm totally comfortable seeing it as two separate wars, it seems more to me like one war with a bit of an interregnum, but that's just a note on nomenclature. Nomenclature aside, here's where it starts. September 6, 1994. On that fateful day, the Chechen National Congress stormed a session of the Chechen English ASSR. That's the Autonomous Supreme Soviet in other words, the Russian governing body of Chechnya. And they stormed this session of Congress to assert independence. And it was violent. They defenestrated and killed the former Communist Party leader in the region. And this coup really forced out a weak, hardly legitimate governing body. And these separatist leaders, these Chechen separatist leaders, asserted control over the politics of Chechnya by force. It was a bona fide coup d'etat. And it forced the Yeltsin government, which if you pay attention to this podcast, if you know your contemporary Russian history, the Yeltsin government careened from crisis to crisis. And here was yet another crisis that Yeltsin had to grapple with. And the Yeltsin government and the Chechen separatist leaders hemmed and hawed and fought back and forth until the 29th of November, where Yeltsin ultimately issued an ultimatum. He said, disarm and surrender. Not surprisingly, the rebel leaders refused to do so. And so it was that Boris Yeltsin ordered an attack. And this attack was massive. It began on the 1st of December with extraordinary aerial bombardments leading to mass emigration, total chaos. And 10 days later, on the 11th of December, 1994, Yeltsin sent in a wave of ground troops. And I remember this. I remember this. It was my first year at university on New Year's Eve, 1994, the Russian military attacked the capital of Chechnya, the city of Grozny, and it left devastation like no other European city had seen since World War II. It was a massive military bombardment, and it was a military catastrophe. More than 2,000 Russian soldiers were killed in three days. While the Russian government was boasting of its so-called precision bombing, the videos and the photos of women and children 
innocent civilians dead in the streets of Grozny were saturating the international airwaves. There was massive internal displacement, massive civilian casualties. Germany's chancellor at the time, Helmut Kohl, described the situation as, quote-unquote, sheer madness. And journalists reported human rights abuses by both sides in this conflict. But it doesn't seem to me like the human rights abuses were equally meted out. The siege of Grozny shook Europe. As I recall it, the feeling was very similar in December of 1994 to what it felt like here in Europe in February of 2022 when Putin invaded Ukraine. And I should say, as I'm talking about this war in Chechnya, in a way I'm talking in code because I'm really hoping that my listeners are going to be thinking about Ukraine seriously as I'm talking through the problematics of Chechnya. You'll see what I mean by that. And, and one thing that I'd like to note before I move on here in that sort of milieu is in thinking about why Yeltsin felt obliged to wage a massive military assault on an area smaller than Wales, we have to bear in mind how painfully unstable the Russian government was and how illegitimate Boris Yeltsin seemed. And while I'm hardly a conspiracy theorist, the historical record does indeed seem to indicate that part of the reason that Yeltsin felt emboldened to attack Chechnya is because he felt so weak in Russia that if he could demonstrate a show of force, it could perhaps galvanize the Russian people, it could show him strong, and if nothing else, it could be a massive distraction from his own legitimacy crisis. Now, the other side of that, of course, is when South Carolina and 10 other American states seceded from the Union in 1860, early 1861. The federal government of the United States felt obliged to use extraordinary force to bring them back into the Union. For Abraham Lincoln and his northern government did not believe that the South had the legal right to secede in the same way that Boris Yeltsin and Vladimir Putin don't believe that Chechnya has the right to secede. Chechnya is in their minds decidedly an integral part of Russia in the same way that the American South was an integral part of the United States in the mind of Abraham Lincoln. When the state of Biafra threatened to secede by force from Nigeria, the Nigerian government responded violently. When the people of Northern Ireland used political violence in their valiant effort to secede from the United Kingdom, the British government responded violently, for they believe that Northern Ireland is an integral part of the United Kingdom. So Russia's not alone in its effort to maintain its internal sovereignty, right? The question here is ultimately one of nationalism, right? 
there is a nation of Chechen people. There is a nation of Ingusetian people. There's a nation of Dagestani people. And this nation of people live in the country or the nation state of Russia. And a critical mass of Chechen people no longer wanted to live in Russia anymore. Russia, the Russian people, the Russian way of life had been disgraced. They had lost the Cold War. The Soviet Union had dissolved. The Chechens were no longer part of a great empire. They were now part of a fledgling and frankly floundering country of Russia, led by Boris Yeltsin, who seemed, shall we say, at times, less than competent. Many Chechens still do not want to live in a country called Russia. And I'm not here to kind of offer my two cents as to whether or not Chechnya has some sort of right to be an independent republic. That is well above my pay grade, but I did want to offer A, some insight into Yeltsin's mindset, and B, a bit of a comparative perspective, because, um, you know, comparative politics course, right? All right. So remind you, we're talking about New Year's Eve 1994 and the siege of Grozny, and it was absolutely horrendous. And this war went on through the spring and summer. And in June of 1995, 200 Chechen separatists led by Shamil Basayev attacked a southern Russian city called Budinovsk. Okay, it's this small little city. It's about 110 kilometers north of the Chechen border. This is in Russia. And in Budinovsk, Shamil Basayev and his fellow separatists took 2,000 hostages for five days in the hospital at Budinovsk. All right, so let's just pause there. This is political violence. If you prefer the word, this is political terrorism. No doubt about it. I mean, I think you have to imagine what it would be like if you were in the hospital and a bunch of separatists took it hostage. Or if a friend, a loved one, your grandparent was fighting for their life in a hospital and it gets taken hostage in an act of political violence. This is high drama. This is disgusting behavior. Period. End of sentence. And in exchange for the release of the hostages at the hospital, Russia agreed to halt military actions in Chechnya and to begin negotiation with the Chechen separatists. The, the Russian government's handling of the Budinovsk crisis, both militarily and diplomatically, was seen, I think quite rightly, as weak and incompetent. It also and this is sort of foreshadowing where part of this lecture is going, it also taught the Chechen separatists that terrorism works. Now, again, if you're trying to like keep a tally of points and who has more blood on their hands, I'm not sure that that should be like your effort right here, right? The Russian siege of Grozny was absolutely atrocious. Taking a hospital hostage is absolutely atrocious. There is enough atrocity to go around here. I, I don't think it's probably healthy, like if you're going into this in the mindset of like, 
who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. I, I would urge you to disabuse yourself of that mindset in this case <laughs> and probably in most cases. In any event, the Basayev-led attack on the Budinovsk hospital was a turning point in what some call the First Chechen War. And so it was that the first phase of this war wraps up in 1996. After about 20 months of living hell for the Chechen people and for Russian soldiers, many of whom I can only imagine would have much preferred to have been home with their families and friends. And it's worth pausing here to get a sense for what's going on in Russia from 95 to 99. And let me tell you what's going on in Russia. Nothing good. <laughs> I mean, nothing. You have the ruble crisis. You have like this state sort of disassembling. You have Yeltsin and his government sort of teetering. Politically, economically, culturally, Russia is really falling apart. The once great Soviet empire is now, as we used to call Britain in the 70s, the sick man of Europe. And it's humiliating, right? These leaders of Russia, which was quickly becoming a backwater of a state, were once the leaders of one of the so-called great empires of the 20th century. And as Russia is, again, careening from crisis to crisis, in 1997, the Chechen war hero and separatist Aslan Maskadov, he was elected as the president of the unrecognized and independent Chechen Republic of Ichkeria. Okay, so we're talking about an unofficial government, an unrecognized government, a rebel government, a separatist government. And Maskadov faced numerous challenges, right? Chechnya had been destroyed in the war. Economically, the infrastructure was destroyed. You have widows and orphans, starvation. You have refugee camps, right? About 40% of Chechens were displaced in the war, 40%. And in this milieu of disaster, there are kidnappings and hostages, organized crime, warlordism, total chaos. Yeah? And this desperation, the desperate state of Chechnya, begat further religious extremism. And then a schism emerged in the separatist movement, and Wahhabism gained traction. You might have heard the term Wahhabism before. It's a complicated term. Uh, it's really loaded. Uh, it, it's a disputed term. But it is a term uh, used in the literature. And Wahhabism refers to kind of like an orthodox, revolutionary, jihad-oriented interpretation of the Quran. Wahhabism was practiced and promoted by people like Osama bin Laden. And, and I'm not really here to mince terms. There are people who are uncomfortable with the word Wahhabism. I, I'm not entirely comfortable with it, but that's, I hope, neither here nor there. For my point is merely to state that the so-called First Chechen War created a dystopia in Chechnya, and this radicalized the Chechen people, or at least a critical mass 
of Chechen people. They looked desperately towards religion, towards religious leaders, towards warlords who had religious connections to just create some order and some stability, you know, to open the schools, to rebuild the roads, to get the trains running, to revive the economy in which 40 to 50% of the people were desperately unemployed, to do the basic work of governance. And in March of 1999, as a compromise to some of these extremist warlords like Shamil Basayev and Ibn al-Khattab, Aslan Mashkadov closed the Chechen parliament. Right? His goal was to have a democratic Chechnya. And he relinquished that goal and instead pursued Sharia law in Chechnya. So... In this so-called interwar period, you kind of have a battle for what we might call the soul of Chechnya. And you have a battle that's being waged on many fronts. And it's a battle that's being waged in a power vacuum. But one thing we should understand about this multifaceted battle in a power vacuum is that it's not like there is necessarily a united front of Chechens. I mean, I don't know if this is a useful framing, but just imagine with me, if you will, a continuum. And on one side of the continuum, and it doesn't matter if it's the left or the right side, but let's say on the left side of the continuum, you have the most radical separatists. And on the very right side of the continuum, you have people who are perfectly happy to be Russian, right? Let's take a walk along that continuum. Let's say on the furthest left, most radical fringe. Again, it could be furthest right, doesn't matter. But the furthest left, you have violent separatists informed by a jihadist Wahhabi ideology to make Chechnya an emirate, to subject the people to Sharia law, and to make Chechnya part of a pan-Islamic struggle against the West and Western values. And these people are willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to strap bombs to their chest. They're willing to kill innocents. They're willing to do whatever is necessary, resist by whatever means necessary in order to create for an Islamic Chechnya. And then let's take a step towards the center. You have people who are willing to fight and die, but not as an effort to create an Islamic state, but to create an independent Chechnya that is to some substantial degree secular. And then we take another step towards the center, and there are people who desperately, urgently want, they need Chechnya to be independent, but they don't believe that violence is called for, or they don't believe that violence will be effective. Right, that they are just outgunned. And then somewhere on this continuum are people who dream of an independent Chechnya, but they didn't see it as a possibility in the 1990s. They saw this as part of a longer-term vision, something that could be negotiated over time. And then I would say, on like the farthest end of this spectrum, 
right farthest away from the Islamic jihadist who's willing to kill innocents to create for an independent Chechnya. The furthest on the other side of that is the proud Russian who happens to also be Chechen. They are ready and willing and able and even desirous to wear both hats. They're proud to be Russian and they're proud to be Chechen. These people exist. Like you imagine the Welsh. You know, there are Welsh people who are perfectly happy to be British, right? Only 50.3% of Welsh people who voted in the 1997 devolution referendum wanted to have a Welsh assembly, right? Welsh independence wasn't so much of a big deal to them. They were Welsh. They're perfectly happy to be Welsh. And they're perfectly happy to be British too, right? We are large. We contain multitudes. We can have many identities. So, so there's this range of rebellion from the most violent, sometimes religiously motivated, to more quiet forms of rebellion to people who are perfectly happy being Russian. And the point I'm trying to make here is as a direct result of Yeltsin's mass bombing of Grozny and the shelling of Chechnya, radicalism emerged in the minds of a great many Chechens, particularly young Chechens, as the only solution to dignity and independence. So this interregnum, 1995 to 1999, is a decidedly difficult time for the Chechen people. As I said, massive unrest, starvation. It's a nightmare. I hope and I pray that nobody listening to this ever has to live or has ever lived like the people in Chechnya had to live in the 1990s. And in August of 1999, the Islamic International Peacekeeping Brigade, led by Shamil Basayev and Ibn al-Khattab, invaded Dagestan. Now, Dagestan is in the Caucasus, just south of Chechnya. Yeah? A month later, in September of 1999, there were apartment bombings in Russia. In three cities, in fact. In Buinask, in Moscow, and in Volgodonsk. In total, these Russian apartment building bombings killed 300 people. And while I'm sorry for each and every one of those 300 people and for their widow and for their orphans. These apartment bombings are going to be remembered because of Putin's hard line on these acts. The Russian apartment bombings were central to Putin's rise. There's a whole chapter in one of Masha Gessen's book devoted to exactly this, and Applebaum talks about it as well. Indeed, both of them write about, and I think on some level believe, widespread rumors that the FSB detonated the bombs in the Moscow apartment building. And Applebaum and Gessen are hardly the only ones who seriously question whether Putin and the FSB might have had a hand in the Moscow apartment bombings. Many respected scholars and diplomats believe that. Uh, I haven't seen the smoking gun but I also don't put anything past Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Jump to no conclusions on that one, but keep the question in the air. 
because in March of 2000, Vladimir Putin became the president of Russia, and he promised to resolve the Chechen problem by force. And he had plenty of support. A member of the Duma Defense Committee in the same month that Putin was elected said, we should hit, hit, and once again hit them until Mr. Maskadov says there's nobody left except civilians. And then we should get in and see that for ourselves. So what this member of the Duma Defense Committee is saying, if you're not reading between the lines here, is he's calling for a massive aerial bombardment, like the one that took place a few years earlier, and then the sending in of ground forces. Now, Putin, at least relative to this particular member of the Duma, seemed to have a much more long-term view on the matter. And he believed that he could reassert control over Chechnya within a couple years. That he could do so with his beloved FSB network, right? The intelligence services of Russia. That the Moscow regime could slowly and methodically plant their people into Chechen politics. That he didn't need to launch a massive military operation in Chechnya. But then came a turning point. So if turning point one in this is Putin becoming president, Putin having sort of a vision for how to deal with violent conflict, the other turning point was September 11th, 2001, a date most of my listeners are keenly aware of. About a year and a half into Putin's first term in office, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon had been bombed, and the United States was on the warpath. The warpath against what George W. Bush and Don Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz at the time and Colin Powell, what they were calling Wahhabism, jihad. We'll come back to that in a second. Putin's playing cagey with the Chechens. He's offering them more independence, something like, you know, a devolution referendum in the United Kingdom, something like a special autonomous region designation in China. And in 2003, a new Chechen constitution was passed via a referendum, and it granted the Chechen Republic significant autonomy, but it was still firmly tied to Moscow's rule. Moscow approved this constitution, but a lot of Chechen people seemed reasonably happy with this constitution. It gave a lot of Chechen people the sense that this could be a major step towards rebuilding and reconciliation. In other words, Putin allowing for this Chechen constitution gave him and his FSB the opportunity to get to work. Moscow installed a pro-Moscow regime in Chechnya. Uh, the first president was a guy called Ahmad Kadyrov. We'll come back to him in a second, and his son. And Moscow eliminated prominent Chechen separatist leaders. And by eliminated, I mean eliminated. Let me run you through the list. In 2005, Mashkadov, who was deemed, quote, an international jihadist, was assassinated by an FSB grenade. The next year, Shamil Basayev was also killed 
by an FSB grenade. That same year, 2006, Abdul Khalim Sadulayev was killed in a gunfight with FSB forces. The next year, 2007, Doka Umarov, who succeeded Sadulayev, he proclaimed an emirate, right? He said that Chechnya was an emirate and he was the emir and he abolished the presidency and he managed to elude the FSB and other Russian police agencies. But in 2014, a photo of Doka Umarov's corpse was published on the Instagram account of the then president of the Chechen Republic, Razman Kadyrov. So that's pretty gangster. I just want to talk about this Umarov guy for a second. In 2006, uh, Doka Umarov was asked by an international reporter whether negotiations with Russians are possible. And Umarov replied, quote, We have offered them many times. But it turned out that we constantly pressed for negotiations and as if we're always standing with an extended hand and this is taken as a sign of weakness. Therefore, we don't plan to do this anymore. In other words, in 2006, done negotiating. Uh, Umarov's prime minister, a guy by the name of Urugov, said that attacks on Russia should be expected anywhere, anytime. Quote, the minimum goal not to surrender, has already been met. Today, we have a different task in our hands. That task is total war. War everywhere our enemy can be reached. And this means mounting attacks at any place, not just in the Caucasus, but in all of Russia. And so that's why Doka Umarov was assassinated by the FSB. The photo of his dead body, first seen by Chechens, on their president's Instagram account. Uh, just a sidebar here, um, because that president who put Doka Umarov on his Instagram account, again, the name is Kadyrov, he was the son of Ahmad Kadyrov. Let's talk about father and son. Father, Ahmad, loyal to Putin, was assassinated by a Chechen Islamist group in 2004. Yeah. His son, Razman Kadyrov, is, according to the Wall Street Journal this week, doing Putin's dirty work in Ukraine. Title of the article, Kadyrov doing Putin's dirty work in Ukraine. Which is to say, if you're following the drama of all of this, the president of the Chechen Republic is about as firmly tied to Moscow and Putin as one can be. He's also, to be blunt, a total piece of garbage. He's, he's a murderer and a torturer and a thug. He collects Lamborghinis and daggers and corpses. The dude is perfectly emblematic of all the thuggery and all the gangsterism that continues to undermine Russian politics and make life for the average Russian citizen just impossible. All right, so Putin and his FSB are going hard at the separatists in Chechnya. They're slowly tightening the political reins, and they're quickly eliminating separatist leaders. And in part because of these assassinations, by 2009, the separatist movement was displaced. I'm not convinced it was destroyed it's hard to say, given Putin's hegemony in Russia and in the region, 
But 2009 is when we tend to date the end of the Second Chechen War, in which 10,000 Russian troops plus another few thousand Chechen police died. And as I said, more than 100,000 Chechens were killed, most of them civilians. But part of the reason that the war ended and that Chechnya is still firmly tied to Moscow is because unlike Ukraine, Chechnya couldn't count on much Western help. And the main reason Chechens couldn't count on Western help is because Vladimir Putin successfully situated the Chechen conflict in the context of the war on terrorism. Uh, Dr. Matt Evangelista of the Peace Studies Program at Cornell University argues, quote, as long as Putin insists on framing the war in Chechnya as a struggle with international terrorism, and as long as the West tacitly acquiesces to his approach, there might be no end to this bloodshed. Now, I just want to raise a quick question and come back to it later. Putin did indeed frame the war in Chechnya as a struggle with international terrorism. But was it? Kind of? We'll come back to that. A slim majority of Russians supported this war in Chechnya. And part of the reason for that is because Putin forced mass media to paint a sanitized version of the war. He's doing the same in Ukraine. The Russian TV media was decidedly pro-Kremlin. Russian print was a little more divided. And one of the lessons that Putin learned in his first years in office is that if you're going to wage military conflict, you got to control the press. And he has succeeded to some substantial degree in doing so in his adventure in Ukraine. But if you watch Russian news or read the Russian mainstream press today, you will hear the same sort of tone and content as you heard when Russia was invading Chechnya. You know, depending on the source, Russian forces were either steadily destroying the rebels or they were just kind of getting caught in a quagmire that they would invariably overcome. Look, I've said it on this podcast before and I'll say it again. The first casualty of war is truth. And the Russian people were told a web of lies about the war in Chechnya. And they're being told a web of lies about the war in Ukraine. One difference, I might add, is that in the war in Chechnya, there was the Union of Committees of Soldiers and Mothers. This is the civil society organization in Russia that supported soldiers and, and veterans while not taking a decidedly anti-war stance. That civil society organization was deemed in 2014 by Putin to be a foreign agent when some of the soldiers' mothers were asking what was happening to their sons in the Crimean Peninsula. But I mean, we need to be brutally honest about it. Part of the reason that the groups like the Union of Committees of Soldiers Mothers were silenced was because the Chechens were engaged in extraordinary acts of political violence, terrorism, if you will. In 2002, the Chechen rebels took 850 hostages inside Moscow's famed Dubrovka Theater. Shamil Basayev claimed responsibility for this. In 2004, there was the seizure of a school in Beslan, in North Ossetia. 
there were 1,100 hostages, most of them kids, and 334 people dead, most of them kids. That same year in 2004, there was an explosion in the VIP seats at the Dynamo football stadium. And this is where Ahmad Kadyrov, the first president of Chechnya, and 30 others were killed. Uh, Basayev claimed responsibility for this one as well. In 2009, the Nevsky Express train that goes from Moscow to St. Petersburg, its high-speed line, was derailed by a blast. 30 dead, 95 injured. Doka Umarov claimed responsibility for this, although some people doubt that he was actually responsible, including the aforementioned Masha Gessen. The next year, in 2010, there was a massive Moscow metro suicide bombing. 40 dead, 100 injured by two quote-unquote black widows, women in hijabs. Doko Umarov claimed responsibility for this. And then in 2011, at the Moscow International Airport, there was a multi-day hostage situation, 37 killed, 180 wounded. Umarov claimed responsibility for this. You could see why Umarov might have ended up on the president's Instagram feed. So this is disgusting behavior, period. And no matter how much you loathe Vladimir Putin, or no matter how much you really, for whatever reason, support Chechen independence, and there are reasons to support it, it's really hard to condone taking hostages in a theater or a school, or blowing up a football stadium, or derailing an express train, or blowing up a metro train. Like, this is abhorrent behavior. And it's abhorrent behavior that is in response to abhorrent behavior by the Russian government. And the whole world was watching. I mean, I remember all of this stuff. All of it was front page news at the time. And as the world was watching, a lot of questions were raised. One question being raised is, where are the Chechens getting their guns and their money and their support? And it turns out that much of the money for the Chechen resistance is reported to have come from Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. And of course, the sick twist in that is that a lot of the guns in Afghanistan were commandeered from Soviet troops in the 1979-89 to war between the Soviet Union and Afghanistan. So follow it, right? The Soviets invade Afghanistan. They lose a bunch of guns and military equipment there. Some of those guns and military equipment are being funneled into Chechnya to fight against Russia following the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's rich, y'all. It's rich. So the Saudis and the Afghanis are, to some degree, funding the Chechens. Anna Matveva, who is a Dagestan expert at King's College London, who I think I'm going to try to get on this here podcast, said that the Stinger missiles that the Chechens had were imported from Afghanistan. The International Islamic Front, once headed by Osama bin Laden, trained Shamil Basayev in Pakistan, right? So, so Putin could perhaps rightly say to George W. Bush, listen, I don't want to have to attack Chechnya, but there's a guy there who was trained by Osama bin Laden who's trying to make it an independent Muslim republic where they're going to practice Sharia law. 
And it's really hard for George W. Bush or Barack Obama, for that matter, to say much about that, given America's role in seeking to combat what I'm loosely going to call Wahhabism. That said, Moscow also accused Turkey of providing financial and material aid to rebels. Uh, the Turks deny this. I haven't seen the smoking gun in that. But there is a lot of evidence that Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan helped to support the Chechens. That's part of the reason the whole world is watching. Another reason the whole world is watching is that Putin successfully framed the conflict in Chechnya as a matter of domestic sovereignty, right? This is a Russian domestic problem. And for that reason, he denied Human Rights Watch monitoring. Despite limited access, the Council of Europe and Amnesty International criticized both sides of the conflict for the, for the blatant and sustained violations of international law. Uh, according to a 2001 report by Amnesty International, and I'm quoting here, Russian forces indiscriminately bombed and shelled civilian areas. Chechen civilians, including medical personnel, continue to be the target of military attacks by Russian forces. Hundreds of Chechen civilians and prisoners of war were extrajudicially executed. Journalists and independent monitors continue to be refused access to Chechnya. According to reports, Chechen fighters frequently threatened and in some cases killed members of the Russian-appointed civilian administration and executed Russian-captured soldiers. In other words, according to Amnesty International, both sides were defying the rule of law and behaving in a disgusting manner. The European Court on Human Rights in 2006 found Moscow guilty of violating the right to life and violating a prohibition on civilian torture. But here is yet another twist. The World Bank and the World Trade Organization inadvertently funded this war against Chechnya by giving aid that was, quote, specifically earmarked for internal improvements. I guess Putin wasn't concerned so much what the WTO airmarked the money for. Shocking, I know. All of this said, the world was watching most closely when in 2014, the whole world showed up to the caucuses for the Sochi Winter Olympics. You know, Sochi is only 800, 900 kilometers away from Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. You know, it's a it's a 15-hour drive. It's a 45-minute flight. And somehow as a reward for its wanton destruction of Chechen lives and the Chechen landscape, Russia was given the Olympics in 2014. And the world was watching very closely with great trepidation to see if the Russian government was strong enough to keep Chechen extremist forces at bay during the weeks of the Olympics in Sochi. And thankfully that Olympics took place without any acts of violence. But I got to tell you, for those of us who watch Russia, for those of us who were mindful of the Chechen conflict, 
you know, there's two things we were thinking. One is how could the International Olympic Committee have given Russia the Olympics? There's plenty of cold and beautiful places with mountains in the world. Did Russia deserve the 2014 Olympics? But hey, what can I say? The Olympic Committee has been unscrupulous before, and it'll be unscrupulous again. The second thing that us Russia watchers were being mindful of was, can this event possibly take place without a preconceived act of political violence by Chechen rebels? And I'm so glad that it did. I can't imagine the catastrophe if it didn't play out as it did. When I look back at the Chechen wars, what strikes me most is how successfully Putin was able to use the language of the West. I remember when he met with George W. Bush, and George W. Bush said that he looked into Putin's eyes and he saw his soul and he knew that there was a good man there. Uh, <laughs> I remember a few years later, Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, said, I, I looked into his eyes and I saw no soul whatsoever. But, but George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin shared an agenda for rooting out what they called Islamic extremism. And Putin was so remarkably successful in either getting international support for his attacks in Chechnya or for getting the world to just ignore what he was doing. It was very successfully played. Because Putin refused to countenance another humiliation. Right? He saw the Soviet Union crumble. And he was desperately afraid that what was left of Russia was going to be chipped away at by outside forces. And so he positioned himself as the savior of Russian sovereignty. And despite the brutality of it all, there's Chechnya right there on the map of Russia. And when the Chechen people watch with great abhorrence the force that Russia is willing to deploy on Ukraine, you could only imagine the impact it has on their hopes and dreams of independence from Russia. You see, the narrative of defeat and humiliation has become the core of Putin's power. So if the U.S. won the Cold War, then it must be responsible on some level for the breakup of the Soviet Union. And the breakup of the Soviet Union is on some level responsible for the impoverishment of millions of Russians. I think this is part of Putin's worldview. Surely it must be. And if Russia was defeated in the Cold War and humiliated, Russia could only be expected to one day seek to exact revenge on the West. Surely the war in Ukraine has something to do with that. You know, over the October break here in Berlin, I took the family back to Barcelona, where my wife and I met, and brought 
couple books with me, one of which was Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. And it's perfect. It's just absolutely perfect. There's one little passage in that book that I earmarked. And perhaps I'll conclude with that. Solzhenitsyn, in reflecting on the life of Chechens during the Soviet Union, said, quote, The Chechens are a nation that refuses to accept the psychology of submission. I never saw a Chechen seek to serve the authorities or even to try to please them. That's Solzhenitsyn. And as I record this almost a year into Putin's war in Ukraine, it heartens me to think that Solzhenitsyn might just say the same about the Ukrainians. And with that, I wish you health and wellness. If this talk meant something to you, if it informed you, if it raised good questions, feel free to pop over to buymeacoffee.com slash Again, the link is in the show notes. I'll catch you all next time.